My name is Steve Hatter. I serve on the pastoral staff here. For those I haven't met yet, I'm usually uh, teaching the Romans class over in the chapel, uh, second service. And I know we have a lot of new faces and a lot of new families coming to our church. So I welcome you. I'm glad you're here. Uh, Jeff and Judy are uh, traveling. They're uh, visiting Virginia with the whole gang or most of the gang. And um, I'm pretty sure they all got there safely. Um, But uh, I've got the pulpit for this week and then the next two Sundays. It's my privilege to do that, and uh, I'm passionate about what I'm going to preach this morning. I'm going to be looking at uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, if you'd like to open your Bibles there. Um, And I'll say this as I open more than a few notable preachers. Consider the New Testament book of Romans as the greatest letter ever written. And uh, John MacArthur actually refers to these two verses that we're covering today, verses 16 and 17, as the two verses that express the thesis of the entire epistle. I agree with him. And he said this, these verses contain the most life-transforming truth God has put into men's hands. Well, I agree with Pastor John, and uh, I feel like I have my work cut out for me this morning to show you this wonderful truth. So let's pray for our time ahead. Heavenly Father, I... Pray that our message time would be fruitful as we open up your perfect word. I pray this would be your message to those assembled, and by the power of your Spirit, hearts would be just softened and opened to receiving Holy Scripture, to receiving the truth, the truth that you gave us, and that's ours to understand. Lord, this message is lifted up to you as an act of love and obedience and worship, and I pray that uh, this wouldn't be about me, that I would just be the conduit through which your truth flows to softened hearts that I would either add to or take anything away from the words you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I want to open up with a question. What is the state of your soul? What is the state of your soul? I would argue this is the single most important question every person born needs to answer. And my guess is that under the pressures of this last year and all the ongoing political strife and disconnect and acrimony that uh, more and more people are wondering about the state of their soul. Because when pressure comes, when pressure comes, life has a way of boiling down to the very basic universal questions of being human, does it not? We want to know why we're here. We want to know who or what made us. We ask the question, what is, what is my purpose What will happen to me when I die? We heard from Russ. Russ has a clear understanding of why he's here. And he's got a clear understanding of what's going to happen in God's timing when he goes home to be with the Lord. That's because the Holy Bible answers these critical questions. And it's the only place of wisdom that actually does this incomprehensibly. And it describes the state of the human soul in terms of binary terms, a binary proposition. Jeff has been preaching on this out of the book of Matthew. A binary proposition means there are only two possibilities. You're either one thing or another. It's an either or. We're either saved by God or we're lost. Our soul is either right with the God of the Bible or we're warring against him. We're either at peace with God or we're separated from him, separated from him. We either count it as righteous in his sight or we are due his holy wrath because of our sin. His justice demands a payment for sin. 
We're either graced with eternal life and fellowship with Him, or we're headed like Satan and his demons to never-ending punishment. And make no mistake, Satan is real. The culture wants to just do away with Satan because, oh, that's passe, and that's silly, and who would believe in the devil? And there'll be all kinds of caricatures about Satan, but Satan is real, and it's clear in Scripture, and he's warring against God. And so we're either headed where he's headed, or we're headed to be part of the family of God. We're either considered a royal family member of the king or we are an enemy of the crown. And there's lots more ways to describe the one or the other nature of this. But make no mistake, the Bible is crystal clear. It's crystal clear. So I'm beginning a three-part series this morning, and I'm going to be covering uh, today verses 16 to 17 and over the next two weeks uh, verses 18 to 32. And what I want to do is show you how Romans brings this out. Romans shows us how to ask and answer the most fundamental question we'll ever have to answer, which is what is the state of our soul? What is the state of your soul? So this first sermon is about salvation. This is about being saved. This is about being right with him being right with our Creator. This is about being at peace with Him. This is about being counted righteous before Him. This is about receiving eternal life from Him and being welcomed into His family. We can call Him Father. We can call Him Papa. So my sermon title this morning is The Gospel, rightly so, the good news. And we're going to look at uh, what Paul was inspired to tell us about the euangelion, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next two sermons, we'll be looking at unbelief, the tragedy of unbelief, the marks of unbelief, and then the consequences of unbelief. And the consequence, the big consequence of unbelief is separation from God. It's receiving His wrath. It's receiving His wrath. And so we'll get into all of that in the coming weeks. But today is a good news day. Today is a great news day. So let's open up our Bibles, if you haven't gone there already, and let's look first at verse 16 from Romans 1. Follow along as I read. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When we think about the gospel, we need to think in terms of rescue and transformation. Rescue and transformation. Rescue means we're being saved by someone or something outside of ourselves, and then we're being saved from a terrible thing, a terrible state, a terrible future. It's sort of, think about being pulled from the edge of the cliff type imagery, and if you go off, it's not good for you, right? And then once pulled away to safety, we have to think in terms of being utterly and completely changed from one thing into something else, something else. Transformation is really a popular word these days in academic circles and in in politics. Everyone wants to transform something, it seems, and we are seeing all kinds of pressures to undo uh, moral standards, dismantle longstanding institutions, reassemble a society that's more suited to worldly ideologies, right? And so people who aren't of faith, they get transformation and they're trying to transform the world, right? Well, we need to think about the gospel rescue and transformation in terms of sound biblical doctrine. What does the Bible say about being transformed, right? 
Well, when I consider the English word transformation, um, this is just me. I'll throw it out as an example to you, but these little transformer toys come to mind. Um, my kids used to play with them, my boys, and I'm probably dating myself here, but you know, I had these little plastic um, and, and metal trucks and cars, and, and they were just quite ordinary, you know, but then you could kind of bend them and fold them and unpack them and reassemble them in a different way, and out would come something that supposedly is alive. You know, and it now has purpose, and it's a dramatic change, and uh, it can go from just an ordinary, boring little vehicle into uh, something that's living and can do things in a purposeful way, either good or evil. That's a transformation. Other transformations we see all the time in nature. We see uh, a caterpillar become a butterfly. Um, we see, you know, in Alaska, the bull moose. It's just amazing to me in the spring, you know, they don't have any rack. They don't have any antlers. And then by fall, they've grown this massive rack for a very specific purpose. God does that, and that's a transformation. Um, the Greek word for uh, this idea of dramatic change is metamorphose. Sounds familiar, right? It's the root word of our English word metamorphosis, which it really helps us describe seeing one thing and then much later something wildly, spectacularly different. An egg producing a bird, a seed producing a plant. Think in terms of spectacular, dramatic, overwhelming, awesome. That's really the idea behind metamorphose. Well, I'm here to say this morning, friends, that uh, the gospel is the most dramatic and, and significant transformation of all. It is the single greatest possibility for you and for me. It's the single greatest transformation possible, where God takes us from being an enemy to being a beloved adopted child in his family for all of eternity. That's a big transformation by God's grace and power and by means outside of ourselves, by means outside of ourselves, this is something he does. We move from one side of the binary equation to the other side. We move from being lost to being found. And that's why Paul, formerly Saul, wrote so boldly in verse 16. Look at this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because he was an incredible beneficiary of the gospel. Perhaps the most noteworthy beneficiary of all time. That's why he's writing this letter to us in an inspired way. His transformation was so shocking, so dramatic, so extraordinary, so improbable, so extensive, so extreme, so miraculous that he is portrayed in the New Testament as the very model of gospel rescue and transformation. And God did it. Why? Why Paul? Well, Paul was in every respect an enemy of God, in every respect. He was the epitome of an enemy, and he was deserving of God's holy wrath, due enemies of deity. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he was professionally persecuting and killing Christians. He was killing those precious ones saved by God. He was going after families. Well, and then what happened? You remember what happened as it's recorded in Acts? The story of Paul's conversion? God did something. God completely and utterly intervened. And the resurrected Christ, the second member of the Trinity, appeared to Paul as he was headed to Damascus. He was on a search and destroy mission on his way to Damascus, and God intervened, stopped him on the road, and changed him, rescued him, and changed him forever. And he was transformed into something completely different than what he was. 
Paul, by God's power, in his perfect providence, was saved. Paul was saved by God. He experienced salvation. He was rescued. And he was rescued because of Christ's finished work. And the one and only thing that Paul did in that moment was believe Jesus. He believed Jesus. He received the faith that Christ was graciously offering him, and thereby he was saved. That was the transaction. And then we know Paul went on to be used mightily by the Lord and wrote much of our New Testament in terms of uh, incredible epistles, his mind, his ability to write, all inspired by the Holy Spirit to bring us these incredible truths, which is what we have today to fight back against the culture. This is the truth. This is the truth we need, and Paul was a big part of giving it to us. He was a rescued man, and he lovingly served the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength until his, his dying breath. But you know, after his salvation, his life didn't get any better in terms of worldly health and wealth and fame, did it? In fact, the rest of his journey, his temporal life after his conversion was quite the opposite of his Pharisee days. He was kind of high on the totem pole, Pharisee of Pharisees, respected, pedigreed, an incredible resume, right? And afterwards, his life was more about misery at times, struggle, scorn, spiritual warfare, fighting false teachers, persecution, prison, even shipwreck. We should, we should understand that, that this world is not our home. And Paul is the incredible example of that. So what I want to do is unpack these four verses and show you this morning that there are four cornerstone words in verses 16 to 17. This is, this is Paul's way of giving us the gospel of Jesus Christ and uh, putting it in, in verses that bring out four cornerstone words. And they are, if you're taking notes, power, salvation, faith, and righteousness. Power, salvation, faith, and righteousness. And, and we all need to understand these cornerstone words. We need to know what Paul is telling us so we can test our own salvation. We want to be sure of our salvation. We want to be at peace with God. But we also want to be able to articulate the grace. We want to articulate the gospel to others. And I want to preach this boldly this morning because the Bible proclaims it boldly. Is the, is the culture bold right now or not? The culture is bold. The culture is coming against everything that's in Scripture and, and truth. And so what we need to do is grab onto this and be bold and be bold. The culture is telling us to reject truth. We need to embrace truth. A lot of what follows in my study, um, I'm very appreciative to uh, men that have gone before me, expositors that have gone before me, have gone deep, in, deep into the text. MacArthur, John MacArthur for one, R.C. Sproul, and R. Kent Hughes. I've, I've been d- diving into the, the rich mining of their work in my Romans class, and so I want to give them credit where credit is due. So let's, uh, let's roll now with verse 16 again. Paul is unashamed of the gospel, so much so that he gave his life to advancing it to the Gentiles of all people. The Pharisee of Pharisees gave his life to taking the gospel to the Gentiles. For it is the power of God, he says. The power of God. This is our first cornerstone idea. Power, transcendent power, divine power, God's power, heavenly sovereign power. And Paul is declaring the gospel 
the power of God using the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite from in English. So explosive, incredible power. The gospel and the Holy Scriptures, everything in it carries the weight of God's amazing attributes. And um, we prayed about this, but one in particular is his omnipotence, omnipotence, his uniquely utterly powerfulness, if that's the way to say it, his unbridled ability to accomplish anything, anything. There's nothing God can't do because of his power, his nature. And so the exact same power that spoke the universe into existence and now holds everything together all the time, 24-7 as it were, is not only at work in saving the lost souls, it is necessary to save your lost soul. That is the power we're talking about. The power of creation is the power that saves men, power that saves people from our sins. Only God can save, and salvation is a manifest of his unlimited power, of his dunamis. And we should see that for what it is, and we should marvel at it, and then we should give him glory. We should thank him and praise him and worship him for that. Whenever God gets glory, we are blessed. God is deserving of glory. The entire point of creation is to bring him glory. But he does that because he's worthy of it. We're not in competition for his glory. We need to give him his glory because he's due that glory. And when we bring him glory, we are blessed. We are fulfilled in the way that God intended us to be fulfilled. God's full power is necessary to meet our most fundamental need. And it's plain that we have need. It's plain that we have need. Think about it. All people have a desire to be changed. Um, The advertising industry makes billions on people's innate desire to be changed, does it not? Everywhere, everyone is wanting to look better, to feel better, to have more money, to leverage more power, to wield more influence. You see a commercial and you're told you're not good enough until you get whatever they're telling you you need, right? And we see this everywhere, but then there's this kind of inner, inner need, this, this hunger to be changed inwardly. It's this, people have talked about sort of a you know, God-sized hole in your heart where only when you're in right relationship with God do you feel his peace. Do you have this sense of purpose? Can you speak like Russ? People who don't have that assurance in their life, they feel guilty. They feel guilty, and they understand that they're not content, and so they hunger for things, and they go after programs and philosophies and religions and all kinds of things. And all these things sort of maybe can help a little bit for a little bit of time, but they never really address the main problem. What is the main problem? What is the main problem? The main problem is sin. The main problem is my sin and your sin. We have all sinned against the God of the universe, the creator God. We have all done that. And so justice demands that be dealt with. There needs to be a penalty paid for that. That's the problem, right? That's the problem, our sin. So this is really only a problem. This is a problem that only God can solve. We're born into sin. We have a sin nature, and we need God's power to remove that sin. We can't do it ourselves. You need to hear that you can't work your way in. This has to be a sovereign act of grace, and our response is faith, which I'll get into in a minute. The Old Testament talks about this, Jeremiah 13, 23 The Lord said, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who accomplished, who who are accustomed to do evil. 
Jesus, in the, talking to the Sadducees uh, in Matthew twenty two twenty nine, basically they were trying to trap him, and, and he, he just said, you are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures or the power of God. The power of God is the only thing that's able to overcome man's sinful nature and impart spiritual life. So I'm going to keep going here on, on how we can't get there on our own. We can't be saved even if we keep every jot and tittle of God's own law that he gave to Israel. We're incapable of it. The law was given to show men their helplessness to meet his standards, his high standard, his holy standard. So the law was given not to save men, but to reveal sin and drive us to his saving grace. Drive us to his saving grace, where Jesus' death on the cross is the only solution for us, and the only response we can, we can do is believe it. Believe Jesus. Believe it happened. Believe he died for us. Paul says this in Romans 5, 6, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then later in 8.3, he says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. Well, it seems like when we hear these things, we would just go, okay, got it. I believe. Why do we push back so hard? Why is it so hard to believe? Why is it so hard across the globe in light of the gospel? Well, here's the rub. God in the flesh graciously absorbing the just punishment for sin, for our sins, it just seems ridiculous to a depraved mind. And that's the state we're in apart from saving grace, apart from being converted, apart from the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. We have a depraved mind and we push back on it. We go, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. What to the world seems to be absurd, though, is in the, it's, it's really, in fact, the power by which God transforms us. That's the transformation power. Ridiculous is actually the power of God. So we have the unbelieving world. It's aided and abetted by Satan and the world's philosophies scoffs at biblical truth. Just open, outright, incredible scoffing, and we see this. But it's always been this way. It's always been this way. This is nothing new to the times we're in right now. It's always been this way. The ancient pagans mocked Christianity, and they mocked the substitutionary atonement. They thought it was ridiculous because their minds were depraved. They had not received the grace. And so also their mythical gods were just kind of reproductions of themselves, and they were small gods, and they were apathetic and detached and remote and totally indifferent to the welfare of men. So Their gods weren't really doing them any good at all, and so they just did not see the beauty of the gospel. And so the idea of caring and redeeming, self-sacrificing God was just beyond their comprehension. In uh, MacArthur's commentary, he mentions a guy by the name of Celsus who wrote uh, about Christians and Christianity, and it was bitter and, and just straight on the attack. Let me read this to you and see if it sounds familiar. Let no cultured person draw near, none wise, none sensible, he said, for all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant and if any is wanting incense and culture, if any is a fool, let him come boldly to Christianity. Of the Christians, he further wrote, we see them in their 
own houses, wool dressers, cobblers, and fullers, the most uneducated and vulgar persons. Do we see some of that kind of mocking today? Absolutely. Absolutely we do. And uh, it's, it's uh, because there is this um, desire to, to believe in ourselves, to make man uh, on the throne of our hearts and not the one true God. We want to be in rebellion. We are in rebellion, and we're guilty of cosmic treason when we are. And Paul was that way. We know that Paul, as Pharisee Saul, was 100% in the camp of mockers, 100% there, and uh, until his, his encounter with Christ. And then we see him utterly transformed, as I've already talked about. And in his transformation, you have to know that he went out of his way to abhor anything rooted in human knowledge or wisdom. And he just openly rejected any form of building on human insight, experience, or appeal in, in his gospel ministry. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, if you want to flip there, Paul told the Corinthian church, listen to this, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's amazing. That's amazing because before he was the Pharisee of Pharisees and knew the law better than anyone. It was all about him telling people about the law. And now he's saying, this doesn't have anything to do with me. This has everything to do with Christ. And later in the letter, Paul said, the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in what? In power. In power. This is verse 420. The redeeming power of God. And so... As people made in the image of God, we're gifted, and, and as if we've walked with God a while, we can be called mature, but all of us have limitations and weaknesses in our minds and our bodies. We're just imperfect, yet God does use us when we walk with Him. But make no mistake, the Scriptures are replete with testimony of God's glorious power, as it says in Exodus, His irresistible power, as it says in Deuteronomy, unsearchable power, as it says in Job, Mighty power, another place in Job. Great power in the Psalms. Incomparable power again in the Psalms. It goes on. Strong power, everlasting power, effectual power, sovereign power. This Bible is about the power of God. And the power of God is needed to save you. Jeremiah declared of God, it is he who made the earth by his power who established the world by his wisdom. Every human born into this world has a problem. We're a descendant of Adam, and so we sin. We sin, and because we sin, we're in need of being saved. We're in need of a rescue, and only God's power can save us. Do you see that? We want that power. We need that power. All right, that brings us to our next cornerstone word, which is salvation. Salvation. Let's look at verse 116 again. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God's manifestation of all of his power, um, you need to know that the greatest manifestation of it is bringing people to salvation. Bringing people to salvation, that's what brings him in, in immense glory, and he intended it to bring in glory. Transforming people from, from our sin-cursed state and nature and giving us eternal life through the gift of grace of his son dying on the cross, that is his greatest manifestation of his power. So if you marvel at creation, marvel all the more at the gospel. 
marvel at the gospel. And, and Jesus even, you know, demonstrated uh, these things, you know, in, as, as he manifested his divine powers, fully God, fully man, but as a, you know, walking deity, as, as a second member of the Trinity, he healed diseases, he restored, you know, crippled limbs, he stilled the storm, even raised some people from the dead. Those that he raised from the dead died again. But um, all those miracles were for very important purposes to very specific audiences. But please know that the, the culminating manifestation of his divine power is the perfect fulfillment of his role as second member of the Trinity. The grace plan of God began in the garden. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all have very specific important roles in the grace plan to bring us to salvation. And Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled his role in submitting to the Father and going to shed his innocent blood on the cross to satisfy God's wrath. And he did it for us. He did it for us. So Paul uses the noun soteria to describe all of this. He uses it a whole bunch of times, almost 20 times in Romans. And then, um, you know, he uses the verb version of it almost 30 times in Romans. So the basic idea here is rescue, rescue, power, applied to rescue, deliverance. And it's here that, that uh, the power of God rescues us from what? From ourselves, from ourselves. God intervenes from the outside and rescues us from eternal separation from him. So this is salvation. This is what's happening. This is the power of God coming in and making a way for us to be saved when we can't save ourselves. People object to the idea of salvation because they're prideful and they're like, what do I need to be saved from? I, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. I don't need salvation. Salvation is sort of an archaic word. It's, it's, it's you know, outdated. I don't need to be saved. I'm, I'm a good person, you know. Well, salvation is God's term. It's God's term and God gives it to us in his word. And so there's no better way to describe what we need most is salvation. There's no better way to describe it. And it's through Christ and Christ alone that men can be saved, that people can be saved from Satan, from judgment, from wrath, and from spiritual death. One way to think about it is, you know, every single person has a gnawing sense of their need for help. I talked about this earlier. And they cannot produce it from within themselves. In our culture right now, people are they're, you know, just like people talk about transformation, they talk about salvation. They talk about what? Economic salvation. They talk about political salvation. They talk about social salvation. They talk about all kinds of things, and they use the word salvation. And, and people look for this inner salvation, guilt, frustration, unhappiness, that's making them miserable. So here we go. Two incredible cornerstone words in this short verse, power and salvation. God's power alone and salvation is what we need. It's, it's, it's important to just always look back at the original context when we, when we do exposition and, and we, we preach expository preaching. And so just looking back, it's easy to see there's nothing new under the sun. You go back and look at the Greek philosophers and, you know, even before Paul's day, you had philosophers like Epictetus who, who basically called his lecture room the hospital for sick souls. It's, it's just the nature of man. And they're talking to it all those... T- centuries and, and millennia ago. Another uh, Greek philosopher, Epicurus, 
called his teaching the medicine of salvation. Use that term of self. Seneca, who is a Roman statesman and philosopher, and even a contemporary of Paul, taught that all men are looking for what? Ad salutum, which is towards salvation. And so all of these taught that, you know, there's just an overwhelming consciousness of weakness and our own insufficiency to get there from here. And uh, we need a hand to let down and lift us up. We need, we need an intervention from the outside. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that, that people who, who don't have a real conversion experience live their lives on the edge of panic. They, they hear everything in the news, and boy, does the media love to get us to the edge of panic, right? And unless you have saving faith and can look at it from a scriptural perspective, you're going to be pulled into this anxiety, which is not needed. People who are unsaved are like drowning people, and their panic is expressed by dragging others down with them. One writer put it this way, two drowning people can't save each other. All they can do is drag each other down. Does that resonate? Is this resonating? I hope it is. Um, Salvation through Christ is God's powerful rescuing hand, as it were, and he, he, he basically has his hand let down to lift us up, to lift us up. But the mechanism for being able to grab the hand is believing. God's power can do it, and we need him to save us. We need salvation from him. So how do we do it? What's the mechanism? Well, we have to believe. We have to believe. That's what Paul did on the roads to Damascus. He believed Jesus, right? He just believed. This is our third cornerstone word. And we need to really look carefully at this. Faith. Faith. Look again at verse 16. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The sovereign power of God working through the gospel brings salvation to everyone who believes. Pistuo is the Greek word, believes. It carries the idea of trusting in, relying on, having faith in. When it's used in the New Testament, pistuo is a verb, most usually expressed in the present active form, which means ongoing. It just means is believing. So believing is an ongoing venture. It's every day, all day, all the time, you just believe. It's not a point in time and space, I believed. It's I believe. I believe. Is believing. Do we not exercise faith every single day of our life in all kinds of things? I mean, think about it. We go and turn on the water and get a drink of water. We trust that that water is safe to drink, right? We drive to Costco and we believe our car is going to get us there, and we believe other drivers aren't going to run us over for the most part. It depends on what time of day you go to the parking lot at Costco, I'll say that. But we trust. We trust in, in, in well-built cars. We trust in driver's training. We trust in the traffic laws that are put there for us. We'll get on airplanes and we'll fly all the way around the globe in airplanes. So we're trusting in things. So we really can't survive if we don't have faith if we don't exercise faith. But here Paul is talking about a transcendent faith. He's talking about a supernatural faith. He's talking about taking what we do every day and place faith in 
and receiving from God the faith to believe. That's what he's talking about. He says, a faith that is not of yourselves, but a gift of God in Ephesians 2.8. God does the work of salvation. He gives us the faith to believe. And what do we say? We have to say yes. Like Paul did on the road to Damascus, we just say, I believe. That's it. And God does the intervention. It's really important to see that. Eternal life is both gained and lived by faith from God in Jesus Christ. Again, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, is what Paul tells us. It has been said that God does not first ask men to behave, but to believe, and then the behavior follows. There has to be a conversion moment. There has to be the promise of the gospel. There has to be the, the gift of a new soft heart given to us. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit, we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and then we start behaving. Not right away. I mean, it's, it's a becoming. It's sanctification. It takes a lifetime. But that's the idea here. God works out our, uh, the product of salvation, um, and our works are an important part of that, but they're not the means of it. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So salvation is not merely professing to be a Christian. It's not baptism. It's not, you know, kind of a new lease on life and, you know, morally reformed. It's not going to church. It's not receiving any sacraments. It's not living a life of discipline or sacrifice. It's believing. It's believing and then letting God, by his power, transform you. That's what it is. We need to give up our own goodness, our own works, our own knowledge, our own wisdom, Those are important things, and God will use those gifts to bless the body of Christ, but that's not what's getting us saved. Salvation is by faith. And there's also important to see in in this verse that there aren't any national, racial, or ethnic barriers to this. Um, it's, It's given to every person who believes. The verbiage here is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We should take a look at that. You know, why, why the language? Why, why to the Jew first? Well, we know God had a very important purpose for the Jewish nation. And the Jews were um, God's specially chosen people uh, to give them the law, to give them the Mosaic Covenant, to show that um, through the Jewish nation that, you know, you can't get there from here by works. It was purposed that way. But he needed to show that this was how salvation would come, it would be through, through the Jewish nation and, and through the chronology and, and the genealogy of, of Christ. Um, the Jews held the first rank as the ancient people. The other nations weren't um, given the covenants. They weren't understanding of the promise. It was to the Jews. So the preaching of the gospel was addressed to them first, very purposefully, and to them alone. Jesus said, I am not sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And later he said that, you know, the preaching in his name among all nations should begin at Jerusalem. So why why is this important? Well, it's God being consistent from the very beginning. God is a covenant keeper, a promise keeper. The grace plan began before the foundations of the earth. It was articulated in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, and he's been perfectly consistent all the way along. And so this provides massive credibility to it all, massive credibility as we look back. Seeing that the Jews were of the first rank, um, this fulfilled many Old Testament prophecies. You know, the percentages or odds of, you know, statistics in terms of uh, 
how many prophecies have come true in Scripture. It's an interesting study. It's, it's massively, massively improbable, impossible, really, when you think about it. But all these prophecies came true. The other reason it's important is because it manifested the compassion of Jesus for those who are most directly responsible for nailing him to the cross. The grace there is incredible. The Jews were the ones who shed his blood. And it was to these Jews after the resurrection that he commanded that the gospel be first proclaimed. How profound is that? That's our Lord. That's our gracious, loving God. And it showed that it was to be preached to the chief of sinners who was Paul. I'm astonished by the story of Paul. I just never, never ceases to amaze me in how Paul was just the perfect one to be rescued, transformed, and then to be the messenger. So this is stuff we need to just meditate on. Charles Spurgeon asked, what is faith? And he answered his own question with this. It is made up of three things, knowledge, belief, and trust. Faith occupies the position of a channel or conduit pipe. Grace is the foundation and the stream. Faith is the aqueduct along which the flood of mercy flows to refresh the thirsty sons of men. All who believe may be saved, but only those who truly believe, who have a saving faith, will be saved. All right, this brings us to our last word, cornerstone, our cornerstone word, which is righteousness. Look at verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the the righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness, righteousness. What is meant by that? Faith activates the divine power that brings salvation, and in that sovereign act, Paul tells us the righteousness of God is revealed. God is righteous, and in salvation, his righteousness is is revealed. How does this work? Well, um, basically, the righteousness of God, his purity, his perfection, his sinlessness, his inability to even look on sin, that righteousness comes from him to us. It's imparted to us. It's imputed to us are the words that are used. We are seen with his righteousness because of Christ. So it's, it's not only revealed, but it's reckoned to us, and it's reckoned to us by faith and faith alone. When God looks at a believer, he sees righteousness. He does not see sin. This is really, really important, so hang with me. There's a legal term that's used to describe this imparting of righteousness, and it's really um, important to talk about this and that word is justification, justification. And we need to understand what this word means. I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean divine pardon. It does not mean you're off the hook. What it means is we've been given Christ's righteousness and he took the penalty for our sins. God doesn't pardon the sinner. When we think of a pardon, you can think of a governor or a president exercising executive clemency And so pardoning somebody who's been convicted of some kind of a crime and is serving a sentence somewhere in jail, federal prison, is not a pleasant place. And so these elected officials have the clemency power to pull that person out and say, you're free, you're free. But when you think about it, their debt has not really been satisfied. Their sentence has been commuted, but their debt is not fully satisfied. It's important to see that. So in one sense... A pardon is, in fact, an unjust transaction. It's an unjust transaction. There is forgiveness and justification. Please hear me. But don't confuse the act of divine justification as an act of pardon. In justification, God is making a legal declaration. 
he's making a declaration that by faith, the righteousness of Christ is accounted to us and our sin is accounted to him. And that sin went to the cross with him and his, God's just wrath for sin was satisfied because Jesus, the sinless one, went to the cross for us. Our sin debt is paid. Our sin debt is paid. That's what justification means. And it comes by faith. Just as God is omnipotent, he is plainly and importantly also just. That's one of his attributes. So if you can maybe think about um, his, his just attribute as a vertical line going up and down in all directions, and then his mercy being a horizontal line and east and west to infinity, they intersect at the cross. They intersect at the cross. That is the only solution for your sin and my sin, is faith that Jesus paid it all. It is finished, Jesus said. Ephesians 2.8, we've already seen this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. This is really, really important because the entire Reformation rests on this idea that justification comes by faith alone. It's by faith, and then there's no to do other than that, other than to believe. Nathan talked about that a minute ago as he was uh, leading worship. If justification by faith alone stumbles, the whole Christian faith comes crashing to the ground. Let me just read uh, from Romans 3. Paul is accent marking this, and then we'll be close to the end here. Paul says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justification. For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Our faith activates the divine power that brings salvation. And in that sovereign act, Christ's righteousness is granted to us. It's an amazing transaction. It's the great exchange. It's super beautiful. And if there's any doubt that faith is important, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. It's the great um, testimony of people of faith. Hebrews chapter 4, it's the hall of fame of faith. And you can just look at it, start at the top. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up. By faith, Noah being warned of God. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham went. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. It goes on and on and on. And at the end of that precious chapter, it just says, the, God, the people of God through faith did amazing things. It wasn't by their own strength. It wasn't because they just decided to do it. It was because they're, by faith, in a right relationship with God. They conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war, and they put entire foreign armies to flight. So faith is really a way of life. It's a way of life. Saving faith. Say yes to Jesus' belief. Let me wrap up with just a uh, story about Martin Luther. Again, Nathan, it's amazing he brought Martin Luther up. But Martin Luther uh, basically began the Great Reformation. 
and it was Martin Luther. He was just searching for God for a long time. He thought that the righteousness of God was a condemning righteousness, a condemning righteousness, and it was driving him crazy, and he was looking for every possible way not to sin, and he just found himself sinning over and over again. It was literally going crazy in this. But little by little, he began to understand, and finally the day came when he saw God gives his own righteousness to make man righteous through faith, and Luther's life was turned upside down, and then he went on to turn the world upside down. I'm going to read you a letter that was, uh, it's, it's now, it's held in a glass case in uh, the library of Rudelstadt, Germany. It was written by Luther's youngest son, Dr. Paul Luther, and it reads, In the year 1544, my dearest father, in the presence of us all, narrated the whole story of his journey to Rome. He acknowledged with great joy that in that city, through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he had come to the knowledge of the truth of the everlasting gospel. It happened this way, as he repeated his prayers on the Lateran staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk came suddenly to his mind, the just shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took this as his chief foundation of all doctrine, and thank God that he did, because he basically reoriented the Christian faith and brought it back to what the Holy Scriptures say, and we got to sound doctrine and biblical, biblical truth. So this, with this understanding, the Re- Reformation began. So please hear, it is possible for men and women to stand sinless before God, but it's by grace alone, and it's through faith. It is possible to know that you have eternal life, just as Russ testified to us. It is possible to, ref- to be free from the frustration of trying to earn righteousness and get into heaven. There's no scorecard. It's you believe or you don't believe. It's binary. You're one of, you're one of God's family or you're an enemy of God. And so, again, we're going to look next week at what unbelief looks like and the tragic, tragic consequences of that. But for today, we can rest in the knowledge that saving faith in Christ can and does change everything in a way that secures our eternity. It's that simple. Meditate on these verses this week and assure yourselves that God is a gracious God and that you can be saved from your sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time this morning. Thank you for uh, this uh, incredibly deep scripture and just two verses. So much comes out of it. Thank you for these uh, cornerstone words that we walked our way through. We pray, Lord, to meditate on these this week and just enjoy growing in our faith and help us to articulate well what you've done for us by your grace. Help us to share our salvation, to share the peace that you've given us that does pass all understanding and that, uh, Lord, we can be part of you bringing others by, by the word of truth to faith, to saving faith. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.